3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you don't know Maria Ressa, you should. And you will once you watch A Thousand Cuts, a film that will open in theaters and virtual theaters early next month. Maria Ressa is a journalist based in the Philippines. In 2018, she was an honoree when Time Magazine's Person of the Year issue focused on, quote, the Guardians and the War on Truth, unquote. A Thousand Cuts follows Ressa and tells a shocking story about the struggle for a free press and the crackdown on news media in the Philippines under President Duterte. It's a chilling movie and a cautionary tale. A Thousand Cuts comes from my guest today, director Ramona Diaz. Born in the Philippines, Diaz lives in the United States now. She came to the U.S. for film school at Emerson in Boston. Through her documentaries, Diaz draws deep portraits, and her subjects vary. From well known figures like Imelda Marcos to women who've just given birth at Fabella Hospital in Manila, the busiest maternity ward in the world. I first encountered Diaz's work through one of her earlier films, Don't Stop Believing Every Man's Journey. Don't Stop Believing Every Man's Journey. Tells the story of how Journey, yes, Journey, the band that's created some of the most beloved songs in rock music, needed a new lead singer and ended up finding their singer Arnel Pineda in the Philippines over YouTube. And this was long before the pandemic. Here's director Ramona Diaz.
0: I got this email, this crazy email from actually the consul who was working at the American Embassy in the Philippines. And it was this crazy email about how Arnell had to sing for his visa. It's a funny, funny email. And I never read these emails. But for some reason, I clicked on that email. I found myself, you know, I'm like, someone has to make this film. So I called my manager in Los Angeles. I said, Peter, oh, my God, you have to read this email. Someone has to make this film. And he he gets back to me and goes, you got to do it. I said, no, no, I'm finishing this other film. I don't want to do it. And I didn't want to deal with famous people because I just dealt with Imelda Marcos, who sued me, actually. That's another story. I said, I I don't have the stomach for it. Um, And the music rights and stuff. Well, one thing led to the other. And then pretty soon, I was talking to their manager, John Uh Barrack. And he goes, yeah, I'll take it to the guys. I said, yeah, you have a great story, but you know, we have to follow him this year. And then uh, maybe like 24 hours later, John Barrett calls back and says, you know, they don't think they have a story, maybe next year. I said, you don't have a story next year. Right. You have a story this right. year. I'll make a deal with you. I said, give me 48 hours with the band, wherever they are, we'll come fly in, we'll shoot for 48 hours, we'll cut a, like, sm- a sample tape, yeah. yeah. And uh, prove to them they have a story. So that's what we did. We filmed them. I did an interview with Arnell and the band together. Um, and some of that ends up in the film. Uh, Submit it. And then Irving Azoff saw it, the big manager, mm-hmm. and his wife. And the wife cried. And the wife mm-hmm. said, you got to do this. So that's how it was done. And, of course, you know, access is a um, its a process. And they weren't used to us being backstage or in their private spaces. Yes. Uh, And it was explained to me that they came of age pre-MTV when those spaces were very sacred. And then MTV sort of broke that open, wide open. So now, like, of course, all the newer bands were so used to people being around and filming, but they weren't, so they were very private. So it took a
3: while. Don't Stop Believing is, uh, uh, of course, uh, much of it is set in the Philippines, and you're from the Philippines. Yes. And you grew up there your entire life?
0: I was born and raised there and came here for college.
3: Now, is it fair to say, for people who don't know the Philippines, which I don't, that uh, is the Philippines like Canada? And when I say that, I mean the whole country lives in Toronto. That's uh, yes. the only place with the yes. economy. Is Manila? Does everybody live in Manila? Yes, it's the only place with the economy. Um, and, and the rest of the country is tourism. Maybe
0: there's another main city
3: down south, Cebu. But, but it, Manila but eclipses n- everything. Yes,
0: like it's like I guess New York, yeah. right?
3: Right. Or, yeah, or, or I say Toronto, Toronto yeah. because every you, everybody that wants a career and something uh, important, yeah. they all go to. That's you know, where the Toronto. jobs are. That's where, That's the where business are. is. Yeah. So you leave there. Uh, uh, how did you explain to your parents that you were going to Boston to go? to Emerson to learn to make movies. What, what, what was the goal back then? Meaning, were you burning to make films or you just wanted to p- put your toe in there and take a look and see what that world was like? No,
0: I wanted to make films. You did. Yeah, because I grew up um, on a diet of local films, local movies, you know, the auteurs of the 80s in the Philippines, Lena Braca and...
2: Um, Philippine Ishmael filmmakers. Bernal,
0: yeah, and also there was an Alliance Francaise and a Goethe Institute that had uh, German films and French films. So I saw a lot of Truffaut. And I remember watching um, Day for Night. I was hooked. I was like, I want to do that. And then I saw Wirt Mueller and... um,
3: Seven Beauties.
0: Yes, all that. It it just, I wanted to make films. I wanted to make fiction films. Mm -hmm. And so I left for Emerson.
3: Had you lived in the U.S. before?
0: I had visited... You know the the West Coast, right? Right, San Francisco. That's where all the Filipinos visit, right? Because it's closest. Big Filipino community. Big Filipino community, also Hawaii, but never really the East Coast. I never lived in winter, you know. But that is, of course, very (laughs) romantic again for me because it's something so exotic. My first winter, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what I was
3: thinking. Yeah, from the it's, Philippines to I Boston. I couldn't get
0: up. I couldn't, you know, so uh, I, I scheduled all my classes after lunch because for the life of me, I couldn't get up to in get the you an
3: hour to get your blood flowing.
0: Yeah, it was crazy. But right. I still loved it. You know, I mean, it's different. And Boston was really, I think, good for me then. It was small enough, but also close to New York. And I had a lot of friends, friends in New York, so I would, you know— drive to New York or take the train. Sure. Yeah, and um and I was exposed to a lot of theater and films and so it was it was amazing. And do you start
3: making films there when you were at Emerson?
0: Yes. So we started making small like you know 3-minute so films on 16 so on film, real real film.
3: Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. Pre-digital. I'm aging, you know I'm, I'm, no, I'm dating I'm, I'm, myself. I'm, 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 yeah, pre-digital. It was all like uh hands-on on the Steenbeck Great, the steam, cutting film film by hand. You think different, right? You really it's very intentional because when I think you're using video, it's more this uh, water hose approach you know, you film everything, but with film, because it's expensive, you really are like with
3: cameras, exactly. It's a different discipline. Now, when you're there, what was your thinking or feelings about making films when you entered the program and how did it change by the time you left? When you leave Emerson, what becomes the, the plan?
0: The plan was to go to L.A. I actually got an internship with MTM Productions, uh-huh. Mary Tyler Moore Productions. So it was St. Elsewhere, Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel. Now, I was
3: going to ask you, you in what says here, you did Remington Steel yes. for five years. What did you do on Remington Steel? I was a
0: writer's assistant. So it You were was, in the
3: writer's room of the show? Yes. Oh, my God. It
0: was like the best job after college. I thought all jobs were like that. Like, you went in, you could go to the trailers for breakfast, they serve you lunch, and if you stay after six, they serve you dinner, right? Sure. My mother visited me in Los Angeles, and she opened my refrigerator, and all there was was water, bottled water, and cigarettes, because I used to smoke then. I don't anymore. But that was all, because I didn't have to buy any groceries. Right. I mean, MTM fed me MTM. all my – and I thought, I love working. This is the best
3: job so ever. So, five years you did the one show? Yes. And then this is what's interesting to me about your timeline. You go back to the Philippines.
0: Yeah. I was – I think, um, you know, because the revolution happened. Um, not, so, Marcos, the, 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 they're gone. They're gone. The dictator was gone. The dictator was all I knew, right, growing up in the Philippines. Yes. And I actually found out more about what they did uh, when I left the Philippines because there was no freedom of the press. Right. And I, I felt like, wow, things are opening up. They're building institutions out there. I want to be part of that. So I did. So you'd
3: rather be a filmmaker there.
0: Yeah, well, yes. You I thought, thought you did. I thought I did. And I got there and realized the infrastructure wasn't there. I mean, the dreams were there, right. but there was no information. The intentions were there. Yes. But then that's also when I got interested in documentaries because all the stories were happening on the streets. But there was no... Uh, I didn't have the wherewithal. I, I i didn't know how to do it, you know? That's why I left to go back to grad school. Right. I went back to Stanford just to find out, you know, hey, can I do this?
3: Now, the first film you make, feature-length doc, is... Imelda. Is Imelda. Yes. Now, now when you decide... To make a film about, you know, this legendary figure, do you sit down? Is your process one that involves some writing and some you putting down on paper your thoughts about how am I going to portray Imelda Marcos in a way that she hasn't already been portrayed five times before?
0: Yes. She's a very
3: famous figure.
0: It's reading everything. Everything about her, about what she's written, about herself, writing my own thoughts. Because I think my films are always, to me, they're explorations. And I want people to change my mind. Like, I wanted her to change my mind about her. right? Did she? Not so much. Well, in a way that I didn't think she was silly. I think she's very smart. So people dismiss her as being... Silly Trite. and naive, yeah. yeah, yeah, but she's not. She's kind of smart. a bimbo
3: with a lot of money and shopping. No, and all she's more, She's
0: very strategic. Right. She's she's got a good political mind. So I went back and forth for two years. I also had to raise the money. It was my first film. Well, how do
3: you how, how do you uh, um, you know just walk up to the uh, royal palace or her private home and ring the doorbell? How does that connection get now, made?
0: Um, my thesis film was about the revolution. It was called Spirits Rising. And I had this crazy notion of also interviewing Mrs. Marcus for that film. And I was there with a student crew, and someone suggested, you know, if you want Mrs. Marcus, you have to figure out where one of her son is, and then corner him and ask him to ask her. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. Hmm. So I crashed a cocktail party, actually, and I, I asked him, I said, listen, I'm a Stanford student. I'm here for uh, like two weeks. We're filming this thing about the revolution. I really want your mother's voice in it. And I handed him the letter. And he's like... was he
3: a fan of documentary film? No. Why do you think he did it? I have no idea
0: why he did it. I have no... And I lost hope. I'm like, okay, he's never going to get back to me. Because he said, oh, that's interesting. Do you
3: think even he had his doubts about his parents' legacy?
0: (laughs) Maybe, but they are they're, they're, they are Marcus' children, you know, they are loyal to yeah. the very end. Loyal, but that. at the
3: same time, uh, w- they wouldn't mind having, you know, another generation, they want uh, more truth.
0: Yes, and especially I said I wanted to hear from her because I had all these other women in the film who were talking from the opposition, and I wanted to hear from inside the palace what was happening when they were about to leave.
3: And the first time you meet her, describe that. Where are you?
0: Uh, We were invited. So this was the very, very last day of our shoot. I had given up. And then her assistant calls me and says, well, Mrs. Marcus can see you for 15 minutes, but you're not allowed to talk about the revolution. I'm like, that's okay. My film's about the revolution, but that's okay. I have 15 minutes with Ms. Marcus. I'll take it. So she invites us to her uh, condo in Makati, which is the business capital in the Philippines, a uh, very luxurious, you know, penthouse condo. Um, she invites us in. Surrounded
3: I just, by guards?
0: Surrounded by help. Yes, her security guards were there. Um, and I expected to spend 15 minutes with her, and we spent five hours with her.
3: She, could she was not- ready to talk.
0: Could not stop talking. Right. And then she brought up the revolution. So I felt like, okay, then it's fair game, right? I didn't bring it up, she did.
3: Five hours goes five by. Five
0: hours, and at the end of the five hours, I, you know, we were filming. Had a movie. Yeah, <laughs> and I asked her, I said, Mrs. Marcos, I wanna make a film just about you, through your point of view. So it was very clear to me that I wanted it from her point of view. Her telling her story before, you know, whatever. And what happened when you me. told her that? She goes, that's a great idea. <laughs> Me? You want to make a movie yeah. about little old me? And why? I, she, you know, then, my, my idea of her was very much Sunset Boulevard, you know? Yes. Norma Desmond. Yeah, bingo. In her really wonderful, uh, you know, condo in the sky, but really lonely and wanted to tell her story. And that's why I think she said yes.
3: She wound up spending a lot of time with her. Yes. Hours, bunny. A
0: lot. And she was so, she had more energy than we did. And we were, of course, much younger yeah. than her. I the mean, she could The camera operator's passing
3: out, and like, she's mid-story.
0: She would not sleep. I mean, and every morning, bright and early, she was, still, she was like quaffed and yeah. put together well. We're like, oh, That look. You know. Yes, yeah.
3: And is she ever, the most, the most, were there any moments where that cracked?
0: Some moments, Such but as she was very um,
3: very controlled. Very controlled. She was
0: very aware. She
3: was very good at being Amelda Marcos. Yes,
0: because for twenty years of their, you know, of their when they were in power, uh, camera crew followed her, so she was very used to that. There was one time we were entering a restaurant, she and that she, I was entering with her, and she pulled me back. She goes, "You watch when I enter. There's going to be a lull in the conversation, just a lull, and then it will go." That because I entered. I said, okay, Miss Marcus, let's observe that. And we enter, And there is. There was a lull. People sort of acknowledged her and then went on with their life. She goes,
3: it's always been that way. That's funny. So, you, I mean, obviously, she doesn't have any rights or approvals or authorities over the film. No. She no. relinquished all of that to you.
0: She did. Um, and so, uh, we premiered at Sundance as well in 2004. And Did right, you have a
3: Filipino premiere?
0: Uh, yes. We and? actually, it was a very, you know, Imelda was the very first documentary that was released theatrically in the Philippines. But um, right before our release in the Philippines, she sued us. She sued my distributors. There was a temporary restraining order. in the Why? Philippines because she felt like I sullied her good name an invasion
3: of privacy, right.
0: but she's a public figure. So the invasion of privacy was thrown out and selling her good name, well, she's a Marcos So that was really tough. So
3: the movie, I mean, I'm being glib here, but so the movie didn't kiss her ass enough as far as she was concerned.
0: As far as, no, see, when she first saw it, she was okay with it. Mm-hmm. She was like, she had some problems well, with it. What's the
3: harshest but... thing that you say in the film?
0: Well, she talks, it's all her words. So she talks about the assassination of Ninoy Aquino and that they had nothing to do with it because if they would have done it, they would have done it in the dark of night, not in broad daylight. It's like, who does that? So she does, I mean, she really, she hangs herself basically because she, that's Mrs. Marcos. So when she first saw the film, right before the premiere at Sundance, um, I had a courtesy screening for her. She had a few problems with it, but she knew she didn't have final cut. Fast forward six months later, we had a theatrical release here in New York, in, in the U.S. So she, all, all the reviewers, of course, New York Times, L.A. Times, Washington Post, reviewed the film. And they all called it like a pariah, delusional, all that. Suddenly she saw herself through the eyes of the reviewers and did not like it. So she sued us in the Philippines. That was the only time. Where did that go? Uh, it was thrown out. And and we opened so big in the Philippines after that because what she did was she had a, like a news conference every day of the trial, and so we so much so that people were saying that we colluded with her to make this like a big a big hit, but we did not. But um, no, it was thrown out.
3: So when you you get sued, the case is dismissed. Yes. And, and when you, what's your next film?
0: My next film is about teachers being recruited in the Philippines to teach in inner-city Baltimore.
3: Because
0: mm-hmm. I traveled so much with Imelda. My daughter was growing up. I wanted to stay home. So I really, literally, a film in my backyard. Right. And um, I read the story in the Baltimore Sun that they were recruiting teachers from the Philippines, which was so odd to me. There was a shortage of science teachers because, of course, all the science teachers were going to the suburbs, you know, where they're more well-resourced schools. Mm -hmm. So they were recruiting from overseas, and the Philippines was a hub because we speak English, right? And our educational system is set up like the American educational system because of the 40 years of um, Commonwealth rule. Mm -hmm. And and so I said, wow, and inner city, in Baltimore, something will happen in that classroom. And uh, one thing led to another. Again, I was given access. I asked the public school officials, and they said, sure. And I was given, like, carte blanche access to the schools. I'm not sure they do that now, but— um, that was my— we, we no, followed, one's,
3: no one's giving carte blanche to access to journalists and cameras to anybody anymore.
0: No more. He's yeah. terrified. Um, yeah, so I followed, like, four teachers during their freshman year teaching in um, Baltimore City. It turned out to be a very hopeful film because these two marginalized groups of fee- people found community mm-hmm. in the classroom, you know? Um, it was It was quite something.
3: Where's the money coming from to make both the Marcos film and this film?
0: Public people, television.
3: Is it? PBS you're, you're funded? Your tax dollars. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm good with that. Yes. As, as well as with, the, with Imelda. Yes. So after the school uh, a story and you're in Baltimore, what comes next?
0: Journey. <laughs> I was finishing the learning and um, still tell, tell reeling tell people the from story. the Imelda tell story. Tell people the story. So Journey. Um, journey in 07 they were looking for a new lead singer.
3: Because Ojiri got cancer. cancer. Yeah.
0: uh, Or something. He could no longer do it. And um, Neil Schoen, who is one of the co-founders of the band, wanted, you know, had heard all the cover bands in the U.S., but wanted something different. So he trolled YouTube, right? He went, of course, where do you go, YouTube? And he just kept looking and looking and looking YouTube. And then he found this guy, Arnel Pineda, who was in the Philippines singing in some at the Hard Rock Cafe in Manila. And he was like just enamored of him and called all his band members the next day, called Jonathan Kane and said, I found the guy. And Jonathan was like, he's in Manila. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, how can we even bring him he's in? He's in a
3: club in Manila.
0: Exactly. And he, he was not known. Arnell was not a known singer. No. He was not famous at all. No. But one thing led to another. They got his visa. He flew out to San Francisco. He auditioned and he got the gig. And um, so the biggest crowd, the lead singer for the biggest crowd he had ever um, performed for previous to Journey was like 200 people. Yeah. Suddenly he was in Vina del Mar singing to like millions of people, and so that part that part is in the film. The first time he sings to like a really large Journey crowd.
3: More from director Ramona Diaz coming up. If you like documentary films as much as I do. I hope you'll listen to my conversation with filmmaker Joe Berlinger.
4: I believe the audience should be treated like a jury. You give them the information
3: and you weigh both sides and you let them come to their own conclusion. You can hear more from Berlinger in our archives at heresthething.org.
4: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this.
2: It took 11 years to get to this sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leakproof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X dot
3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Ramona Diaz's most recent film, A Thousand Cuts, tells the story of Filipino-American journalist Maria Ressa. But it's really a window into the country and the government led by President Duterte. Ramona Diaz has lived in the United States for most of her adult life, but the Philippines remains central to her work.
0: I think I make films because it's a yearning for the motherland. Every film is a yearning. What do you love about the Philippines? I, I go back there because I find it somehow hopeful that something will change. And then it gets very frustrating. So it's a, both a love-hate relationship. And it's everything I know, right? It's everything uh, deeply. I know I know that country deeply, Um, And I have still a lot of friends. And I always have hope for it. And that's why I think I keep going back. And that's why I keep making those stories. And it's also to decode, I think, what's happening in the Philippines to the Western world. I think I'm in a space where I can do that. I've lived enough in this country to be able to do that. So I'm both inside, outside. That's why I love going back.
3: Um, Trump is someone who... You know, Bolsonaro is someone who he considers himself like-minded with. Duterte, he considers himself is a hero to him. Do you realize now in the time of Trump that what's happened in your country can happen here as
1: well?
0: Yes. So quickly, too. Because if you're not vigilant, you know, if you don't take care of it. Yeah. it goes away so quickly. It's so amazing how fragile it is. But the thing about the US is your institutions are much stronger. The reason in the Philippines things change so quickly in six months because the institutions are not that strong.
3: Well, you're very right. The institutions are stronger in spite of Trump, but they're significantly weaker than what, since he took over. He's yes. tried to destroy those institutions. Yes. But but, for for people who don't understand, I want them to see the movie. The movie is called A Thousand Cuts, and it's just depressing as hell. I mean, it's really depressing. You don't find it hopeful? Um, I, in a I, way? I mean, I, I, I find it a little bit hopeful. I find Duterte, I find Duterte because he's, Unbridled mm. by many of the stop gaps we have in this country, yes. when Trump says I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and, and and I could get away with it, Duterte is literally shooting people on Fifth Avenue and getting away. He's literally yeah. doing that, and he's there.
0: bragging
4: about it. Yeah, and very, yes. very I mean, he
3: is a yeah. monster.
4: Yeah, he's a yeah.
3: very, very, very unique individual in terms of his, uh, uh, in terms of the depths of his hatred. He seems to be soaked. In hatred.
0: And he um, really traffics in fear. He really thinks fear is important. How do you think he became
3: that way? Did you talk to anybody who had insights to him earlier in his career? Has he always been this way?
0: I think he's always, you know, he used to, he's the son of a governor. So although he's an outsider politician, he still comes from a very political family. Mm -hmm. So he was surrounded always by cops and security guards. And he's, I think that's what he grew up with, you know, just a culture of killing. Or people killing, or stories of killing. So to him, I think it just comes naturally to to talk about killing. Everything is killing. It's really quite incredible. But no one is ever outraged. I think that's my that's what I'm surprised at, because people just laugh and they're not outraged. I, I mean, as you saw in the film, he talks about like female parts in this really crude way, mm-hmm. and people are laughing. Mm-hmm. The, the outrage
3: isn't there. Do people mark in his career, do you see in a timeline of his career, uh, um, when he turned and became more uh, uh, plain speaking in terms of violence and killing people? What, uh, I what think, was, before he was president, what was he?
0: He was the mayor of Davao, uh-huh. uh, a town in the south. and in Davao, Crime-ridden? Uh, crime-ridden that he cleaned up, and that's why he won. Because you know there was this myth that he delivered. Cleaned up, he delivered and cleaned up Davao. How did he clean up Davao? Well, the same way he's cl- cleaning up Manila, basically by death squads. Right? Yeah, death the squads. same thing. He did the same thing in in Davao, and because of that, he was mythical when he when he when he ran. Um, he was mythic, and um, and everyone thought, okay, he can do that here in Manila to clean up Manila. But the thing is, Manila is not Davao, and he's still. I think he's still. Uh, in his mindset, is still a mayor, small town mayor, but now he's president, right? And so he hasn't made that shift even after three years. He's still micromanaging everything and it's, it's just the
3: most crazy. powerful courts uh, that could stop him, the most powerful courts in your country that could uh, have some influence over him, are they elective or are they appointed?
0: We have an appointed Supreme uh. Court, but they are all his appointed. He's a now. Uh, the so one who was the, the loudest um, voice against him, he he got rid of. I mean uh, you know, he he fired.
3: Right, right, right. They right,
0: do. and then the loudest voice in the Senate, Senator de Lima, he imprisoned. Right? So all branches Is he still of in government still in prison after 3 years now. So all branches of government are really under his control. And that's why they say he no law. He doesn't even have to proclaim martial law. Right. There's no need because they're all under his control.
3: They've given him all the the the, the tools of martial law without yeah. asking for it.
0: Well, exactly.
3: You went back there to shoot the film, and you interviewed him.
0: No, but you we didn't... were given access to being footage being really of other interviews. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we were like closest to him, like in the pit which was very rare because he doesn't like anyone, the press, near him. But for some reason, he allowed us in the pit. And so we were really close to when he gave
3: all those speeches. Were you afraid about what would happen to you? from the outcome of this film? Um, Marcos gave you all that access and you made this film and she was disappointed. I can't imagine <laughs> what the possibilities are if Duterte was disappointed.
0: Um, you know what? Ma- Maria was not afraid. Maria Ressa is a protagonist. We're going about her, yeah. So I, I, I felt like, wow, then I can't be afraid, right? I mean, of course fear was there, right? But I'm a documentary filmmaker. I think I'll regret it forever if I didn't do it. So sort of the fear outweighed any kind of you know, imagine um, regrets.
3: But, but, but is there a resistance there that has expressed any hope of killing him?
0: Oh, that's a whole other conversation.
3: Right. I'm assuming a political assassination has happened in this country. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had yeah. our political assassination. Um, I'm assuming, I, I wonder if people who really want to save the Philippines.
0: But there's a, he's always imagining coups and, and right. you know, uh, coup attempts and coup
3: right. yeah, conspiracy theories. Yeah. He's always poised yeah. for a coup. He's always poised
0: for a coup. That's yeah. right.
3: Um, let's talk about Maria Ressa. In the film 1000 Cuts, who is Maria Ressa?
0: Maria Ressa in the film is the loudest voice against speaking up against Duterte. She is a woman who is fighting for press freedom in the country. She's been a journalist for 30 years. She was the face of CNN Asia for a long time. She was head of uh, bureau chief of uh, CNN Indonesia and then CNN uh, Philippines. And then uh, went on her own and founded Rappler, which is a completely, like, digital news site in the Philippines. And when Duterte became president, they were the first ones to really question the drug war and the numbers. And- They're like the
3: intercept.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. Very,
3: very muscular truth seekers. Yes.
0: Yeah. And, they, and Duterte was not happy. And in turn, Duterte is, threatens her with 11 cases just to shut her up. And yet she does not stop. She just speaks up. So he went after them and tried to shut them down and has filed 11 cases against Maria, all stemming from tax evasion and anti-dummy. Messing with her. Yes, basically. So because they question it. I mean, they're the loudest voice against um, Duterte because the opposition is really uh, fragmented (laughs) and not, not very, you know, not very effective these days. And so, what? And
3: did you get an impression? I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure you did, uh, but I want to ask: Did you get an impression when you were interviewing Maria? Why does she do what she does? What's her?
0: She always says raison? that. She always says that she has no choice. Like the baton was passed to her, and she has to do it. She has to stand up. It's a duty. Yes. Right? She can't not do it. Just like I can't not make the film, right? Because I think the regret, but you have to do it. You have to speak up because as a journalist, then what do you stand for if you don't speak up during these times, right? When you really have to fight. So she feels like she has no choice, but we all know we all have choices. We just make the choice that we feel we can um, uh, not regret. Mm
3: -hmm. Right? What's interesting to me, what's unusual about Maria Ressa, I never met Gandhi. I don't think I've ever actually watched actual footage of the real Gandhi. I might have. I only know Gandhi as he was portrayed in films and so forth, Ben Kingsley. Maria Ressa has what I imagine is a Gandhi-esque level of patience and tolerance. You never see them get to her. No. She never lets it get to her. She has the most... Unimaginable level of self control I've seen in a human being in my lifetime.
0: And it's genuine. Right right? Because we spent so many hours with her. We thought, ah, you know, it's genuine because she feels like it's counterproductive to go down that road. She has a job to do. She's
3: going to do it. She's so self-actualized in that yes. way. It's, it's mesmerizing.
0: Yeah, it is. And because that's they, why I think the camera mess with loves her. her.
3: Yeah, they yeah. mess with her so much. And she's like, hey, what do you want me to do? You want to see these papers? Sure. Okay. You're going to arrest me? Oh, okay. <laughs> you never see her act out or, 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 or. Which is a problem sometimes
0: because she, I'm like, "Oh my god, do people will people really get that she's in trouble because she's smiling too much?" But then I guess people do. That's her that's what she is and I think that's part of the the charm and part of sort of this irony and the tension between what she is and what's happening to her it really works.
3: When you showed Maria the film, what did she think? she had been on camera a lot of her life, so it wasn't yeah, surprising. Was she was
0: overwhelmed. She you know, people are, I think are always surprised when they when they see themselves in that situation, because they never—they always forget what you capture, right? Because we were with her for months and months and months. She had no idea how we were going to put it together. And as a journalist, she tried helping us, you know? It's like, do you want to do this? Do you want? We're like, no, 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 no. You do what you want, and then we'll just follow you. This is what we do. We, we're not journalists. You do something different. We do something different. So when she saw it as a whole, she was like, oh my God, you captured everything. I'm like yeah, because we were with you, and I think seeing it as a whole just brought her back to those moments that she hasn't really had time to reflect on, and so I think it was really powerful, especially when she saw the Sundance with like the whole crowd. No,
3: no. For you, describe if you will, what's it been like for you as a woman making films? What's been you the unique challenge for the, about that?
0: Um, people trusting that I can do it, you know, but convincing I'm them, convincing them. Right. I mean,
3: but that's changed in your lifetime, hasn't it?
0: Yes. Well, especially with a thousand cuts, I got I raised that money very quickly because it was imperative that I be shooting quickly. And they just said, sure, here. (laughs) Well, no, I make it sound so easy, but it was like a whole here. Just go and do it. And here's the whole entire budget, whatever we asked for. Which was a first for me. Oh my God. Yes, it was a first. And I'm like,
3: wow. I want to make movies with you. I want to work for you. <laughs> People write you checks and oh hand you bags sure of, if, of money.
0: I'm not sure wow. if that's going to ever happen again. Yeah. But I was like, wow. Maybe really? not.
1: <laughs>
3: <I>
0: <laughs> that know, sounds right? like a once in a lifetime. No, time. because it's just content, right? People were looking for a film about Duterte. Sure. They couldn't quite figure out what. I couldn't quite figure out what. I thought I wanted to do it on the drug war exclusively until I met Maria. Then I thought, Oh my God, she is the protagonist Here's in the film. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they just fall onto your lap. Sometimes they
3: enter the room. So, as a woman filmmaker, things have gotten a bit easier for you over the just
0: years. Just a little bit easier, because I think I've also like uh, staked my claim. My there's, I have a niche, right? And I've. You've got only a couple of good working. films under your
3: belt. Yes. Yeah. What are you working on now?
0: Um, Can you say? Uh, you prefer I, not to say. I, I, can't say it's like a docu series, but I also want to do fiction. You do so. I've been trying wouldn't to make do a feature. fiction. I just have to stop doing documentaries in order to write. As you know, you need space and time and quiet and stillness. So I'm actually trying to make a feature of Imelda. I'm making it into like a Fiction piece.
3: There's a lot there.
0: Yeah, and and you wouldn't
3: you... be able to get that job done in two hours. I don't think. <laughs> Seriously, I mean that could be maybe a Right. A, a streaming series.
0: But um, don't stop is being um, made into a fiction narrative into a narrative
3: film, yeah. by John Chu. Oh I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: at uh, Universal somewhere. Yeah' so now, we're at gonna, Universal.
3: now we're going to have to have, or I, I should say, now they're going to have to have a talent search to find Exactly. The kid that was the subject of the talent search.
0: It's very meta.
3: Casting is ongoing, I'm told, in case anyone out there thinks this might be their calling. Ramona Diaz's latest film, A Thousand Cuts, will be out in theaters and virtual theaters on August 7th. I hope you'll make a point to see it. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.